Hey, everybody. This is Karen Stefano, author of The Secret Games of Words. And with me tonight is Susan Henderson, author of the novel Up from the Blue. How are you, Sue? Hi, I'm good. I'm I'm getting a little bit of a cold, so my voice uh, may fade out as we go, but um, I'm happy to talk to you. Yeah, and I'm so thrilled to talk to you. Um, is it is is it snowing back there? You're in New York, right? Yeah. Is it wet back there? Snowing? Or is it snowing yet? No, it's actually it's actually been kind of gorgeous. The only thing that's weird, I was driving today, and there were um, there's a big police presence. Let's just say there's like there were roadblocks and all kinds of stuff. So the weather's beautiful and. The mood is interesting these days. Well, um, excellent. Um, so, so, Sue, I'm going to launch right into uh, some of the questions that I have for you. Um, your novel, Up From the Blue, has been out for a while, for a few years. Mm-hmm. And tell me, how many languages has it been translated into now? Uh, actually, languages, I think just, yeah, um, there was Norwegian and Dutch, and then there were different versions that went around in New Zealand and England, but just just the two languages. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, that's, a, that's a really tremendous success for a, for a tremendous book. Um, and, you know, I, I know that you, um, with the book having been out for a while, you have talked many times about the characters in this book. And mm-hmm. I, I understand that, that the focus, understandably, has been on the mother in this novel as, mm-hmm. as well as uh, the daughter. But... I would like this evening to really focus our discussion on the father in Up From the Blue. Um, And before I ask you um, my first question about him, I want to read a little bit from early on in the novel. Okay. Dad Dad worked during every bit of free time, reading stacks of papers and filling up yellow legal pads with formulas until one evening he set us on the couch. The government wanted him to work in a new office, he said, on something called DNSF. He used a ruler to draw a picture of a five-sided shape with a hole in the center of it, and tapping on the drawing with his pencil, he said, my new job will be right here. And, uh, earlier, earlier, uh, the father She's talking about her father's business trip, and she says, My father's business trip came up suddenly, just after the local newspaper did a feature on him. Copies of the paper with photos of the men who'd flown from Washington to meet him were posted at the PX and in the lobby where he worked. I understood almost nothing of what he did, only that he designed missiles. When I visited his office at the weapons lab, with its long blackboard full of formulas and diagrams. He always saved an area for me in the right-hand corner where I was allowed to draw with chalk. Mm-hmm. So, so, so these, are, these are wonderful passages, and they, 
they give the reader early in the novel a great sense of uh, your your child narrator's uh, relationship with her military scientist Pentagon working um, uh, weapons of mass destruction designing father. Mm-hmm. Um, why why did you make the father a scientist? Why did you make him a scientist who develops weapons of mass destruction? Hmm. Well, first of all, it's just, it's really interesting how few people bring up the dad in this book. So it's uh, it's fun to talk about him for a change. Um, part of what I'm playing with in the book is this ordered world of the military base versus the the messy world of lives and how none of this father's strength in problem solving with things as complicated as WMD works in the face of his wife's depression. Um, as for why I decided to give him this line of work, um, some of my writing is pure imagination, and then sometimes I like to dig deeper into the familiar, and in this case, the world of military officers and scientists is one I know very well, so I just decided to just go all in. And, well, your your dad uh, worked for um, the, the Defense Department, right? My real dad, yes. My my dad worked um, at the Pentagon in the Department of Defense, and then later, for the bulk of my growing up, he was a project manager over at DARPA, and after that, he was the deputy director of DARPA. So DARPA is where um, uh, it's it's the think tank for the Pentagon, and that's where they develop everything from weapons to digital speech to GPS, which is in the book, to the internet. And um, it was just kind of fun to to go somewhere that was such a part of my childhood. So even though I wasn't exactly, it was not my dad, but, but my dad's work in this field is what, what interested me in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, that explains why, you know, why the father in Up From the Blue is so well drawn and so so true to life and um i you know I, you know he's he, he's he's a flawed he's a flawed man um we're, we're mm-hmm. all flawed um <laughs> and he's he's faced with a situation where he's trying to use his skill sets as a military scientist where in in his family life where those skill sets in interacting with his daughter and 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 mm-hmm. wife um mm-hmm. don't necessarily cut it um did you ever have any you know situations like that with your with your own father where you know obviously your dad was a, a brilliant man, um, uh, but did he were were his skill sets, uh, you know, enough to to take care of your needs as a child? I 
I think so. I mean, I, I think um, I have a I have a very strong relationship with my dad, although it's very particular. We're definitely we do things together, like we'll go to the orchard together, or we'll do taxes together, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. We're doers. Um, it's interesting because I I feel like this world of his has so much to do with um, what makes me the person that I am. Um, so I don't know if it's really how much he connected to me in that way that that was so significant. It was, um, I just feel like almost all of my strengths and weaknesses come from the fact that throughout my childhood, I was surrounded by these brilliant inventors, mathematicians, computer scientists, roboticists, one being my dad. And so think about this comparison. Most of his inner circle went on to win Turing Awards and Nobel Prizes and Presidential Medals of Freedom. And I played soccer with a little girl named Schlesinger, whose dad was the director of CIA and later the Secretary of Defense. And so this was my world, great minds, high achievers. And then there's me struggling to publish a poem or a short story in a magazine that doesn't even pay. <laughs> so you, I just feel like the, this feeling of, of inferiority has just been with me my, my whole life. Um, but the flip side is that I grew up among dreamers who've come up with some of the most spectacular and unlikely creations. And my, like my dad would show me something in the palm of his hand or in a lab, you know, something that multiplies numbers faster than ever before or something that hops all day long trying to teach itself how to balance. And you look at these weird ideas and you can't see any use for them at all. And then like 20 years later, you see it out in the world and whether it's a missile or a message that can be sent in seconds to the other side of the world or something driving itself through the streets of Silicon Valley or driving itself across Mars. Um, I feel like on the one hand, I got this huge sense of insecurity, but I also inherently believe in dreaming big and taking risks and believing in things as impossible as writing a book. (laughs) 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 Yeah, like, like, I think the fact that I come from this family has made it easier for me to say, hey, I've been working on the same thing for five years and it's still not there, but why not? <laughs> well, you know, yeah. why why would I not think it could get published? Because I, I've seen crazier things happen and take yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's it's it's a it's a weird contrast really. Um mm-hmm. I mean obviously you're so you sounds like as a child and and you know now probably as an adult you're so different uh in terms of your emotional and cognitive makeup versus um you know your own father and the people that you were surrounded by as you grew up but yeah i guess yeah the takeaway message for you was was dream big and that's um, that's paid off for you because you wrote a, a, a tremendously successful novel, um, and uh, so 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 that's so it's awesome. So. <laughs> 
Um, so you have uh, another book coming out, don't you? I I am editing. <laughs> uh, there's another one of those. I was like, oh my god, this one's going faster than the first one, and now I'm I'm now five years in, and it's it's not done yet. So I'm I'm definitely starting to see it. I'm seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't really know how long the tunnel is yet. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we live for uh, that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I guess we do. I mean, it, we have a we have a love-hate relationship with that feeling, I guess, right? Yeah, um, you know, I think it, it's where you, you find out that you are a writer because there's every reason in the world to stop, you know, it, it looks crazy. It's hard. You don't get paid, <laughs> and, and still we can't make ourselves stop. And I feel like well, that's why we're writers. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 exactly that's exactly why. Um, well, can you tell us? Um, are you at a point in in the book where you can tell us a little bit about what it's about? Um, I can tell you a little bit about. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the main character and the setting. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if I try yeah. to tell you what it's about, I'll, I'll, I'll miss. I'll do that thing my agent never wants me to do, which is to get Okay. <laughs> well, tell, um, tell, us, tell us what so, you can tell. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Mary, the main character, is a mortician. And at least for now, um, the book opens with a scene from her childhood growing up in a funeral home um, when she encountered her first dead body. And it's a scene where her father, another father, um, gently licks her into a world she will learn to love because um, for Mary, the dead are safe relationships. Um, they can't reject you and they don't place any demands on who you ought to be. So, um, this this is obviously a very true, <laughs> but but ramped up version of my own fear of rejection that I'm playing with in in the book, um, and the the setting is kind of fun. The um, I knew I needed to set this book in a small town for lots of reasons, um, but in my first draft, I just kind of patched in a generic small town, and then sometime later. I was on Facebook, and for some reason, I posted a picture of my family cemetery, and I got this huge response because um, our cemetery is overrun with sagebrush and rattlesnakes, and the plots are are mostly children, and the their plot, but like that, instead of headstones, there's like primitive boards nailed together and license plates with names etched into them. And people were like, oh, my God, where is this? Is this the setting for your book? And I was like, how did I not think of that? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, yeah, so I did a Facebook to um, like troubleshoot my novel. Um, so I had that terrible first draft to win at Montana, to the town where my father, um, it's funny, we're just talking about my dad the whole time, um, where my father grew up and where I used to visit my grandparents in the summer. And um, I lived there for a month while I edited the book into the, the terrible second draft. And so this town, the town that the book set in, 
is, um, and the one I visited, is a town of 182 people. Um, it's all dirt roads, no traffic lights, no stop signs, no cell phone coverage. You have to drive two hours to get a signal. And um, I stayed in a hunter's lodge um, that had no landline phone, no TV, and I lived out of cooler. So I mostly had um, nuts, dried fruit, cans of tuna, instant coffee with hot tap water. That was really good. <laughs> while I was there, my, my hair fell out in clumps while I was there. Um, and I don't know if it was my diet or stress or if it was just like the weird smelling water that I was using there as I it drank out of the tap. But the, um, the trip was totally transformational for the book. It, the, the town's no longer generic. In fact, the town feels like one of the main characters now. And um, as you know, because fact and fiction are, are a, a muddy thing. <laughs> um, I, I was definitely inspired by Winnet, Montana, but it's definitely not Winnet, Montana, because for other things in the book, there's my plot required a funeral home and a cell phone service. So like right yeah. there, I had to make, you know, big exceptions to, you know, the, the town I was actually in. So that's a little bit about the the new book, and it'll get there. I'm I'm getting close. Well, it's I mean you've you've hooked me, and I'm I'd, I'd be willing to bet you've you've hooked anybody uh, uh, else uh, who's who's listening. And um, so I'm I'm sure it's going to be I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. So um, so get to work. So we want to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hey, can I ask you about a story from your collection? Yes, I would love to uh, answer that question. Okay. Um, well, there's a story I love so much. It's um, called Sarah Turner's uh, Sublime Timeline of Grief. And uh, yeah. it's a mesmerizing piece of writing. Um, but more importantly, it's just one that kind of burrowed into me on an emotional level. And I would love to hear you talk about those girls in the story um, and and how it was to write the story and how you feel about those girls. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about that. Um, this the, the inspiration for this story was. You know, people tell you, write about the worst moments of your life. Write about, you know, mm-hmm. when you were, were the most terrified, where you felt the most betrayed, where, you know, whatever, whatever your worst feeling in your life was, and use that as a prompt. And so, mm-hmm. so for this story came from uh, what what are you most ashamed of in your life? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fictional story, but um, it stems from a time uh, when I was in elementary school and um, uh, there was a girl in our class and, um, you know, uh, I, I hate confessing this, but um, frankly, uh, we bullied her, and um, I wasn't the ringleader, but I um, I certainly played my part. 
and uh, it's something you know I'm I'm profoundly ashamed of. Um, and you know this this story um, came came from that. But it, it's bullying is, and I you know believe me in my lifetime I've I I was a bully once in elementary school, but I've been mm-hmm. on the the receiving end of it too, certainly. But mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a fascinating concept. And in mm-hmm. the story, and I touch on this with the the uh, line about um, uh, you know they're like the, these girls, they're like little chihuahuas. Who are yeah, I love trying that to, yeah, they're trying to take on a German shepherd. This girl, Sarah, in the story, she could turn around and kick these little bitches' ass in a second, but she but she can't even see herself. She doesn't see her strengths, and mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's how bullying happens. It's you know, a person isn't a place where they feel helpless. They feel like they have no power. They feel like they have no alternatives, no control, nowhere to go for help. And it's just, it's just a, it's a fascinating dynamic for me. And um, something that I I love that you did in the story so much is that um, we feel the shame building and we feel it definitely at the end but I love that before you do that you just really um, let yourself go to that little girl's mind experiencing the sense of power and and um, it just felt like you I like writers who just go there <laughs> that go yeah. there in that real uncomfortable place that we went it's it's easier to write about shame. It's harder to write about mm-hmm. that felt good. That felt good to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and then and then that's why the shame hurts so much later because it did feel good. It wasn't it wasn't um, coerced, you know. And I love that you just went to that raw human place that that we go, you know. Yeah. And um and and thank you thank you for that um and yeah I mean I think that's when we all do our best writing um don't don't you um if you if we try to um, sugarcoat uh, whatever the emotion is we're targeting whether here it's shame or betrayal or uh, loss or, or whatever whatever mm-hmm. it is we're writing about, if we try to sugarcoat it and we try to trick ourselves, it, right. it's not, it's not going to come out on the page, right, you know? Right, or, or we try to let it go too fast, you know, like you're doing like a speed ride to Dr. Phil or something. Versus, right. Well, I think a lot of us read so much is because it's like, oh, they're telling my secret. They put words to this thing that I felt, um, and not always bad things, but just like someone who can just stay in the the moment and in the um, in that uncomfortable place that we can't name. And I love when writers do that. I just felt like, oh, she did it. Karen nailed it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah. And the other the other thing I I tried to capture in this 
piece, and, and at the end, um, I used actually used the word um, patience. And mm-hmm. you know, I think I think of the girl in this story. I think of the girl who I knew when I was a child, and it, I'm really struck by the patience it must take. Um, mm-hmm. to show up day after day, hoping oh, against God, yeah. all hope. Yeah, it's, that it's going to get better. All, you know, all evidence to the contrary. And, you know, and then obviously, yeah, juxtaposing that patience against this narrator's own current place, which is mm-hmm. uh, in the story, a, a pretty hopeless place. Um, but that's, I don't know. Patience, patience is an interesting, is an interesting concept to me. So, so that was something I definitely wanted to get across in this piece. Yeah. And do you, do you well. feel like um, from, from this vantage point, from this age, do you feel like you have more or less sympathy for those girls? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I don't, I mean, I can't, I mean, I can't have any sympathy for bullies. I can't have, mm-hmm. I guess, I, I guess I can have empathy um, yeah. because, you know, when I, I think that bullies are in a very insecure, unstable place themselves um you know secure confident secure people don't bully right um i i i just i can't imagine that's that's the case i mean um i think that people bully when they're frightened themselves um Mm -hmm. and and they're 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 scared so i you know i i guess i can I can find that shred, that shred of empathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good All point. Right. Empathy, empathy versus sympathy. That makes sense. It, it's also interesting. I love that you're talking about the um, the muddying of fact and fiction because I just feel like that's um, that's just a, such an interesting and inevitable place that that we go as writers. I I always feel like writing fiction is like. Uh, I don't know if it's it's the heart or the mind or whatever, but it feels like there's this giant stew made up of memories, real life experience, things you saw in the news, things you overheard on the subway, um, yeah. completely unfounded fears like kidnapping and <laughs> you know things like that. And you, um, I just feel like I mix the two all the time. Like I'll take a dress that I loved in childhood and I'll place it on a character as entirely made up or I'll set a crime that never happened in a house or on a street that I could describe to the smallest details. And I just feel like it's, it's fun to mix. Although what I, what I feel like I'm always trying to do and, and maybe you too is I'm just trying to unpack the human heart, you know, all the shadows and glory, um, by, by just kind of turning the world, the world of my imagination and the world of memory all in a big, in a big stew pot. 
Yeah. So yeah, well, you make it sound you make writing sound easy for you. Just just uh, um, unpack the human heart, and there you go. You've got yourself a story. You've got yourself a novel. <laughs> it's just it's unpack the human heart. That's it's so it's so easy to do, and it's so easy to to do that on the page, right? <laughs> oh yeah, piece of cake. I just I just write so fast. <laughs> so, um, so let me. Um, uh, I told you these these um, webcasts go really fast, but we've already been talking for about 30 minutes. So um, we've okay. just got time for um, a couple more questions. Um, but okay. um, I, I'm not letting you off the phone until you tell me a little bit about your process. I have seen some of your posts on Facebook, and you have your pages. <laughs> Set out on the yeah. wall so perfectly. Um, it's it. It kind of frightens me when I see those posts. I have to confess because it's so it's so it's so orderly, and I think, oh God, I should be that orderly, and I'm not. Um, but tell me, tell me about those photos, and and for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen these posts, um, go to Susan Henderson's Facebook page and look at some of these photos and and uh and and give it some thought but but uh so so when you're doing that where are you in your process is are you almost done are you struggling with something what where are you when you're putting those pages up on the wall oh my god I feel like I'm always in and I'm always lost <laughs> When I have to put things up on the wall or lay, I used to lay them out on the rug, but then I finally got a big bulletin board. So it's just the same process. It's just, um, I just pin them up now because the, the dogs walk on them less. Um, <laughs> well, it's really, it's really funny because I, I have a hard time talking about my writing process because even the word process implies some kind of plan or sense of order that's just not at all been my experience of writing. Um, I've, I've tried before to impose order on the creative process with outlines, sticky notes, charts that try them all. And I just feel like I always fall into chaos. So when I, I'll, I'll answer about the, the bulletin board, um, although it probably won't really be a satisfying answer. Um, when I pin them up, I started in poetry. And so I'm very, um, there's something about shape that speaks to me on some kind of gut level. So a lot of times when I'm posting them, I'm looking for two things. One is balance, and another is I'm trying to track something that feels uneven in the book. So what you didn't see on the picture that I posted, because I posted while it was all clean, but what I'll do is I'll have a whole bunch of different color highlighted pens, and then I will... Um, I will follow characters and scenes by color through the thing. I'll be like, oh, this is why the book isn't working because I've got pink in this cluster over here and pink way down there, but I don't have any pink in the middle. <laughs> so I, I wow. Wow. Weird, <laughs> just weird things to just try to give me um, a sense of what's out of balance. Sometimes when I pin them up, I'll be like, oh, I've got a 40 page chapter and then five three-page chapters what the hell you know <laughs> and so I'll say I I wonder if there's something underdeveloped here I wonder if 
this 40-page thing needs to be broken up and spread throughout. So a lot of it is just um, when I'm really stuck, I just look for visual cues. I'm always just looking for any cue to get unstuck. <laughs> um, that's, that's possible. What I tend to do, the, the most strategic thing that I do um, in, in my world of chaos is once I have a first draft, um, which is the easiest part of the process for me, um, that's like the four-month process, and then it's like six years <laughs> of hopefully not more than six years of editing. Um, but once I have a first draft, what I, what I do is I look for, I, I just start to, where can I dig down? I'll look in characters' pockets. I'll look in back rooms. I'll open drawers of the setting that I have. Um, and I'm looking for threads to pick up and run through the book. So sometimes it's an object or a theme or a mood, a character, the weather. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll follow it through the whole book. And, and basically what I'm doing all the time that I'm editing is I'm trying to discover more deeply what am I, what am I really trying to write about? What, um, I don't ever want to write a book about something I know. I only want to discover what I don't know. And so I'm always, like, for me, the first draft is laying out the shape and the questions and the search. And then the editing process is just, like, digging down. What am I actually writing about? Why am I obsessed with this thing? What is that little subconscious piece of information that keeps coming up in the book that I didn't even realize I put in and then I just kind of sit with that I, and I and I dig and um and then I just make a big mess of the whole thing and then it falls apart and then I decide whether I have it in me to put it back together again then I put it on board <laughs> you know so it's just like this big chaos I I guess I guess in summary um don't copy what I do <laughs> this is like the most inefficient, you know, you got to just like pull your hair out during the process if you do it my way. Um, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, I think I think everybody everybody says that. Well, okay, so I, at least you've made me feel a little bit better that there is there's pain and agony and. Uh, uh, behind those those uh, perfectly pinned up pages, <laughs> so because um, I know because I have pain and agony are a lot definitely part of my process. And yours looked yours looked so clean and neat on those Facebook photos. So now, oh my um, God, I, no. yeah, I'm yeah. So I feel so much better now. So because I guess I can't it's so true that I never ever mentioned this to people by posting. I mostly <laughs> post picture like look how crazy I am. <laughs> no, it's, um, no, it looks like it looks like you're I this is my interpretation. I see those photos and I'm like, oh my gosh, she is perfectly in control. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's more it's more like um someone whose natural state is chaos. I'm always just like grabbing for any kind of structure or control or order because that's not my uh I don't even have, you know, they talk about people who have a linear brain, a linear process, and people, yeah. and mine's not even circular. It's just like, it's just uh -huh. like, like, it's like a confetti process. And so <laughs> I view 
I, I do things that might mislead you into thinking that I'm really organized, but I'm trying to put order on like utter chaos. So it's it's that. <laughs> Don't be jealous. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, good. That's that's good. Phew. I feel I feel much better much better now. Um, so well, um, Sue. Um, I guess I guess it's time for us to to wrap up now. But um, I really want to thank you for taking time to talk to me. I'm a huge fan of yours. Anyone who's listening who hasn't yet read Up from the Blue, um, get it. It's an incredible, incredible book. And um, and Sue, I can't wait for the next one. So um, so get off the phone and go get to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sue. Bye. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.